Hey there, welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We hope today's message finds you well. This introduction is meant to prepare our expectations and set up a healthy mindset as we begin this new series in John. We've studied through a book of the Bible before uh, in this podcast. We went through the letter to the Galatians. The Gospel of John is a little different than the letter to the Galatians because this is trying to tell a story rather than addressing specific issues. If you remember our series in Galatians, it, it was a letter addressed to the church of Galatia. That was, a, that was a town, that was a place. And it was written by the Apostle Paul. And there were specific reasons why Paul wrote that letter. There were issues he had to address. So it, it was more didactic in its presentation. Didactic meaning like it's intended to teach. A, a lecture could be a good example of something uh, didactic. And that's kind of what that letter was. He was correcting and instructing through teaching. The Gospel of John is different than Galatians because this book was intended to help people believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. There are four Gospel accounts in the Bible. John is one of them. There are also the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The exact genre of the Gospels has been debated for centuries. You know, like what kind of literature it is. And it's still debated today. My stance on this situation is that they appear to be biographical in nature, but more narrative-driven in structure. That's, that's what I've observed. For instance, the Gospel of Matthew was written to a, a more Jewish audience, and the author's goal was to prove that Jesus was the promised person of the Old Testament. He wanted to prove that Jesus was the prophesied king who would come and establish God's kingdom on earth. So he starts out his book with a genealogy that starts with the father of all Israel, Abraham. He works his way down in a, in a stylized format down to King David, and then he works his way down again to Jesus Christ, who he is declaring to be the Messiah, the descendant of all these leaders and kings. It's a three-part structure made up of a, a lot of sevens. It's, it's very Jewish in its design. He then details the virgin birth and makes claim that Jesus is the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy. And then immediately, he tells a story about some official wise men coming from another country to Jerusalem because they want to worship and acknowledge the newborn king of Israel. That's all within the first two chapters of Matthew. He's using Jesus' life and the events that happened in his life to tell a story about why we should believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Each of the gospel accounts 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John use Jesus' life like it's a, a, a biography, but they don't necessarily tell it in chronological order. And they instead rearrange events in order to tell a specific narrative. Another example uh, could be the Gospel of Mark. This book was written to a, a more Gentile audience, a more Roman audience. His opening statement is, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But he doesn't begin with the virgin birth, like Matthew records. He instead starts with the ministry of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. The reason he does this is because Mark is telling the story of Jesus, but he has a different emphasis that he wants to make. A big theme throughout Mark's gospel is understanding who Jesus is. He's a divisive character in the story. Some people want to follow him, others want to undermine him, and still others aren't really sure what to think about him. The people who do follow him, specifically his disciples, they kind of misunderstand him. They see Jesus as this victorious, conquering king who's going to retake Israel from the control of the Romans. But Jesus is really intentional, and he keeps redirecting their attention away from that idea. Near the conclusion of the story, Jesus is dying on the cross, and there's a Roman centurion who is awed by Jesus' cry, and he's the first person in the book to declare, truly, this man was the Son of God. The four Gospels were each written for different audiences, and because they were written for different people, they carry different emphasized points. Matthew wants to show that Jesus was the promised king of the Old Testament who would bring God's kingdom to earth. Mark wanted to make people ask, who is Jesus? And then he emphasized the crazy claim that the Jesus who was crucified and then rose from the dead, he is the Messiah. The primary goal of the gospel writers is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And they want to help you be confident as you put that belief behind that idea. This is important for us to acknowledge, especially among Western cultures, because ever since the 17th century, when deism took a hold, we have been conditioned to defend Jesus' deity. And so now when we read through the Gospels, our lenses have been shaped to look for evidence that proves Jesus is God. The Gospel writers and the people that they wrote to, they sat with a different historical perspective. They didn't seem too bothered with the idea that, that God could have stepped into history as a God-man named Jesus. Now, there were people who took offense at that, and they tried to stone Jesus, but Overall, especially in the Greek and Roman cultures, that wasn't a big problem for them. Instead, the big question was, is this Jesus of Nazareth, the one anointed, appointed, designated, empowered, and solely authorized to fulfill God the Father's will on earth? They wanted to know if Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. I should note, 
that these gospel accounts, they do include the fact that Jesus pre-existed as deity, as the second person of the Trinity. And we'll see that in the first chapter of John. There is plenty of evidence to show that Jesus is God in the flesh. But again, that, that wasn't their primary emphasis. And, and that's good for us to recognize. Now, since the 18th century, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been known as the synoptic gospels because they repeat a lot of the same stories. They have very similar wording, and even their structure uh, can be similar. John sits outside of the synoptics, uh, the synoptic gospels, because it's rather unique in comparison. Instead of being filled with Jesus's parables, it's filled with metaphors and similes. Instead of having the Sermon on the Mount, it has the upper room discourse. It tells the story of Jesus, but it's, it's different in how it goes about it. Again, I, I, I believe this book is influenced by the audience that it was written for. As a Bible teacher, I would tell the story of Jesus differently to middle schoolers than I would to young adults. And, and that's a, kind of a silly example. And, and really, that's only me thinking within the category of an age gap. John is writing to people of different cultures, and that influences a lot more than just, just an age gap. So anyhow, let, let's talk about the author and the audience and the book's purpose. The Gospel of John was written anonymously. And, and what I mean by that is the author didn't sign their name on the parchment anywhere. The author simply referred to themselves as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was their identification. Early church tradition credits the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, as the author of this gospel. But of course, since then, there has been lots of debate about if it was a different John, like John the Elder, or if it was someone not even named John. <laughs> I, I take the position that it was the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, but if I was proved to be wrong, it, it wouldn't really shatter my world. I'll, I'll share with you why I've come to the conclusion that it's most likely John, the son of Zebedee. Some of the language in the gospel here denotes an awareness, if not even a participation, in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. In the fourth paragraph of John's prologue, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The pronouns that I'm looking for here are us and we, showing that whoever is writing this is including themselves with residing with Jesus, he dwelt with us, and seeing the glory of Jesus. We have seen his glory. So within this book, the question is then asked, who is the we? Who did he dwell with and who saw his glory? That answer comes right after Jesus' first miracle. It says in chapter 2, verse 11, right after Jesus turned water into wine, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So right there, we're told that Jesus' disciples witnessed the manifestation of his glory 
and as a result, they believed in him. So Jesus' disciples are the, the we. And that conclusion can be collaborated with the identification of the disciple whom Jesus loved. So then the question becomes, which of the disciples wrote this gospel? The first time the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, is used is in chapter 13 during the the Last Supper in the the upper room, also known as the upper room discourse. Uh, it, It says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus's side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So there's, there's three immediate conclusions that I take from this. Uh, number one, this disciple is a man because Peter asked him to ask Jesus a question. Uh, number two, this disciple was one of the twelve because the upper room discourse only had Jesus with his chosen disciples. And number three, the identification of the disciple whom Jesus loved was not in reference to Simon Peter uh, as he was the one asking him a question. By the same logic, it also wasn't Judas Iscariot, it wasn't Philip, Thomas, or Judas the son of James, because they're all mentioned in the same way as Peter during this upper room discourse. Continuing this process of elimination throughout the rest of this book, we're only left with Matthew, Simon the Zealot, James the son of Alphaeus, and oh, and John, John the son of Zebedee. Matthew is credited with writing the Gospel of Matthew, so he, he would be an, an unlikely candidate. Simon the Zealot and James the son of Alphaeus they're, they're kind of obscure figures uh, throughout the New Testament. Honestly, I don't know a lot about them. I'm not sure that there's much to know about them. But I've never heard them suggested as possible authors for this gospel, either by the early church fathers or by any kind of tradition. They're, they're not part of the debate. So that leaves us with John, the son of Zebedee. That's the internal evidence I see for John, for John being the author. This, this doesn't include the external, the, the extra-biblical resources that help put John in the, uh, the authorship seat. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go over all of that. If you would like to look at that, I would suggest looking at some of Polycarp's writings. He, Polycarp, he, he claimed to be a disciple of John, and one of the things uh, that he said was that John wrote this gospel while he was a resident at Ephesus in Asia. That's that's one thing there, but, but there's more. There, there's, there's more if you'd like to look at it. Let's look at the audience now. The people that John wrote this gospel for were both Jews and Gentiles. He's addressing two different audiences at once. However, these two audiences seem to share a commonality, Greek influence. Besides Polycarp, there's another church father named Irenaeus, who also said that John published this gospel while he was a resident at Ephesus. Now, I'm I'm assuming that the timing of this writing, uh, I'm assuming it took place around 70 AD, maybe later, probably later. And I'm placing it there because it's likely that this was written after 
the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. John seems to write about the temple as if it's no longer there. After the destruction of the temple, the practice of Judaism was uh, slightly uh, crippled. Judaism without the temple meant Judaism without a, a sacrificial system, a fully functional sacrificial system, uh, or you know the priesthood. So for Jews who were part of the diaspora, Jews who, who didn't live near Jerusalem, but, but rather lived out in other parts of the world, they would go to places that they felt like they could get along in. As it worked out, those who, who were not necessarily opposed to assimilating into another culture, they lived in certain places like, uh, like Ephesus. And the more, uh, we, we could call them uh, separatists. Well, that's kind of a strong word. Eh, well, well, we'll call them separatists. People who, who liked to keep separate from other cultures and wanted to keep their culture, they lived in places like uh, Galatia or, or, or Cappadocia. I'm, okay, I realize that's kind of an oversimplified statement, but here's what I'm trying to say with it. Hellenistic Jews who leaned more towards Greek culture would get along better in places like Ephesus, which had a significant Greek influence. The Jews of, of Ephesus were definitely people who had Jewish values and grew up with the Torah, but they were also considered Hellenistic Jews because they had adopted certain Greek influences. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. Outside of the Jewish population, the, the demographic of Ephesus was definitely Greco-Asian. So think of pagan mythologies, Greek mythology, maybe a little bit of Roman mythology, which is kind of like Greek mythology, uh, Greek philosophy. This was territory under Roman control, but it was a culture of Greek influence. So that was the audience. John is writing to two different cultures simultaneously and addressing both of them through certain phrases. It's, it's incredible. This gospel is an ingenious construction. I'm excited to show you how he managed to do this. It's, it's crazy. I imagine that this book took him a long time to write because it is filled with intentionality, and it's, it's really layered. A lot of... One phrase can, can mean kind of the same thing, the two different cultures, which is uh, incredible. Finally, let's talk about his purpose. What was John's purpose in writing this book? What, what, what did he want to emphasize? At the very end of his book, John makes several statements, uh, things like, uh, now there were many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Another one. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I would say that this statement right here is the thesis of this gospel. It was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John has a very specific structure uh, in this book. He, he talks, he has seven signs, seven I am statements, plus seven more. He, he has a, a very specific structure in this book that helps 
emphasize this main point, but we'll look more at that as we get further along. As we end this introduction, let's remember the, the mindset that we should have as we approach this gospel. This book is kind of biographical in nature, especially uh, how the ancient world considered biographies, but it's more narrative-driven in its structure, meaning that the author wants to use the good news of Jesus' story to make a specific point for his audience. As we read through this, we should read it as it's presented. It's a narrative. A story is being told. We should also remember the historical situation of the original audience. This was written to a people who are no longer alive, but it is also meant for us here today. Sometimes that gets put backwards. So, so people say something like, this was written to me, and it was for an ancient audience. That, uh, that, that's incorrect. It was written to an audience locked in time, yet its value is timeless and therefore beneficial for anyone alive today. So we should certainly be aware of that. Uh, in addition, we should come to this study with an awareness that we have different cultural and historical perspectives compared to that of first century Christians. We come, we, we use a different lens when we look at the Bible. So that's something that we should check at the door as well. Lastly, we should come with an attitude of joy because this is going to be a joyful study. We're going to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's told by the Apostle John. This is an incredible thing that we get to do and we should come with an excited reverence. So starting next week, we'll enter in John chapter 1 and we'll, we'll look at the first 18 verses, which is considered to be the book's prologue. If you want to get the most out of this study, I would suggest reading through those first 18 verses in preparation. That would be, a, that would be really good. That would be a good help for you because then you'll have a, a better, maybe a, a refreshed understanding of, of what I'll be teaching through. So that's, that's totally optional. It's up to you. But either way, starting next week, we'll get into John chapter 1. Thank you for listening to Pickled Parables. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us, subscribe, and share with your friends. If you're interested in more things like this, check out our secondary podcast called My Dusky Bible. To stay up to date with all things parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. Parable is a volunteer organization, and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.